0: reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? All right. Well, you know, this is Sex Help with Carol the Coach, and, and we talk about so many topics. Poor Russell. He's a trucker, hasn't been home in six months, and that means sex addiction is much more accessible to him due to his loneliness his isolation, and when we understand what's behind sex addiction, we're much more likely to be able to figure out what the antidote is to help him get into good recovery and make his life better. That's why I was really excited today. I have to tell you, this show is going to talk about some really interesting data and research that is being done on sex addiction. So if you're a sex addict in recovery, if you're a sex addict who wants recovery, and if you're a loved one of a sex addict, you're going to want to hear about um, the research that is going on through a very specialized foundation, the American Foundation for Addiction Research. We call it AFAR. And that is a public, if you will, nonprofit that funds research so that they can effectively treat addiction of all types, but in this case, especially sex addiction. You remember year three when I was doing the show and I had Patrick Carnes on. And he shared his belief that the only way we were going to be able to really treat sex addiction in a a way that benefited everybody, we would need research. And he actually told me in my training, we're all going to have to become brain scientists. It's not about moral failure. It's about the brain. So we've got Tim Stein on. He's a colleague of mine who has a special affiliation with AFAR. Again, that's the American Foundation for Addiction Research, and this is going to be a very, very important show because it's going to help you to understand the origin of sex addiction, what we've done to bring that to light and their treatment and the research that has actually promoted an understanding in our community and especially in the public, and then going to talk about the exciting things that we've got to look forward to in the future to understand sex addiction a bit better and all the comorbidity that occurs with it. You know, the depression, um, the attention deficit disorder, the suicide rates that increase when somebody's dealing with sex addiction. So I am going to introduce my colleague, Tim Stein. I am so happy to have you on the show because you're going to enlighten our audience and, and help them to understand this really important foundation and the work that they're doing. Welcome to Sex Help with Carol, the coach. Uh,
1: thank you so much, Carol. As always, it's a pleasure to be here and, and you know, as I just want to put out there how much personally really appreciate all the work you do, putting this podcast out there, all the work you do for, for couples, for sex addicts, for people who are struggling with betrayal trauma. You know, you, you certainly do bring a lot to this field and we are lucky to have you
0: Thank you, Tim. So you reached out and you said, hey, I'd like to help the public understand what we're doing at the American Foundation for Addiction Research. AFAR for short, A-F-A-R. So share a little bit about that organization and what their goals are and what they've done and what they hope to do.
1: So AFAR is a, a nonprofit, a public nonprofit that's been around since 1998. And I, I love you referencing your, your interview with Pat Carnes because Afar was started uh, with, by a group of people, one of whom was Patrick Carnes. Mm-hmm. And it was part of his mission, which is exactly what he said. We're going to have to become experts in research. We're going to have to become experts in brain science. And uh, Afar has been consistently funding research with a special focus on sex addiction, but into all addictions, mm-hmm. uh, trying to better understand, uh, better clarify exactly what's going on so that we can more effectively treat and we can more effectively advocate for effective treatment and understanding of uh, the addictions, sex addiction, better understand what the people who are struggling with these conditions, what's going on for them, and to be able to move all of these addictive uh, processes out of the public light of people that just don't have self-control or are behaving badly and to move it into this is the condition that they're struggling with. These are the dynamics that are playing into that. And let's understand those struggles. Let's clarify what we can do to help them change their life and, uh, and manage their condition and figure out how to move forward with that. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, you know, we know that sex addiction has been around forever, and yet with the Internet, it is so much more accessible and anonymous and affordable. And so the, AFAR, the organization that actually is doing research, is obviously also using the Internet compile information from people who are all over the continuum in terms of what they consider their sex addiction. So share with us a little bit about how the research has benefited um, those affected by sex addiction.
1: Well, the uh, research that AFAR has supported has brought us so far specifically uh, in the past in our ability to identify, understand, and screen for sex addiction mm-hmm. and to give some guidance and in, in, in better uh, treatment for the addicts. Uh, AFAR-supported research uh, related to sex addiction in the past has uh, validated screening tools. The SAST, the which is the Sexual Addiction Screening Test, uh, was validated through research uh, supported by a far, so we have a tool that we can give to people, and they take this very simple assessment. I think it's about 40 questions, and based on those uh, responses, we can uh, uh, screen and give you pretty good um, a pretty good answer on is it likely that you are struggling with sex addiction, or is it likely that you're not struggling with sex addiction and there's something else that might be going on if there's a concern around your sexual behavior. Uh, AFAR's supported research has validated and clarified information on the sexual dependency inventory, Mm -hmm. which is a huge assessment that uh, sex addiction, um, certified sex addiction therapists are able to give to their clients to determine if sex addiction there, what are the dynamics of sex addiction, uh, and uh, also AFAR's supported research clarified the behavioral categories you know, one of the things that uh, initially happened with sex addiction, it was just assumed, well, if you're a sex addict, you're a sex addict. And there was sort of this idea that sex addicts and their behavior were non-discriminate, that anything, if you were a sex addict, you were open to just about anything. And one of the things that the research we, we supported clarified was that's not really the case. If people are sex addicts, there typically are certain behavior categories that their addiction is limited to. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we have found through a correlation, clinical correlation, is that usually those behavior categories are connected to whatever the person's underlying trauma experiences Mm -hmm. are. So if somebody is a foreign masturbation fantasy addict, they're not, you know, unless their behavior is already gone, they're, they're not people who are going to be doing a lot of voyeurism and ex- exhibitionism. If somebody is a pay-for-sex, going and using prostitutes or paying for sex as a massage partner, you know, they are not likely to be people who are doing um, uh, networking for anonymous sex or going and cruising and picking somebody up at a bar. There, that information about the categories is really helpful because as a certified sex addiction therapist when I have a client who's coming into my office and we're doing these assessments and we're figuring out what's the treatment plan, how are we most effectively going to help you, the, the dynamics of the boundaries that we're going to talk to this person about putting in place are going to be very different if they're a porn online sexual behavior kind of guy versus somebody who is going out and paying for sex or is going and picking up people or having extramarital affairs. So we can more effectively tune the treatment that we're doing when we understand those categories. And all of that research has come about because of uh, research supported by uh, the American Foundation for Addiction Research. We're actually very proud of what we've done. and we've got some cool stuff. I know we're going to get to this in a little bit, but we've got some really cool research that we just recently funded mm-hmm. uh, and that that we're in the process of continuing to fund that gives us even greater insight and understanding.
0: Well, you know, I named this podcast Some People Don't Even Believe That Sex Addiction Exists. And mm-hmm. there are a lot of naysayers out there that think, well, this is just men and women behaving badly and they don't understand the neurological implications, and they don't understand how this gets worse and worse. And, you know, we needed the research to be able to be included um, in the World Health Organization um, Mm -hmm. to get some inclusion into the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual that so far has rejected us, but I've heard this this go-round, the next go-round, because of the World Health Organization's um, population, if you will, on research that they too are going to include sex addiction, and you and I both know that when these heavy hitters understand sexual compulsivity mm-hmm. and and the behavioral disorder that occurs, we're much more likely to make that happen. And isn't a far part of the reason the World Health Organization made the choices they did.
1: It is. AFAR, again, Afar supported a lot of research. When when you look at the history of research related to sex addiction, what we started out with because the people who were doing this work were clinicians. hmm uh-huh. Clinicians, as much as we appreciate research, as much as we try to become neuroscientists at heart were clinicians. Uh-huh. What do we what do we do typically? We tell stories, we see stories. And so the research and the papers that were originally being put out were descriptive studies. They were descriptions of these are the clients we see coming into our offices. These are the common patterns that we see. And so there was a lot of description around family of origin, around abuse history, uh, that led to being able to, like I was saying, more effectively clarify what might be some screening questions. But what we really needed to move beyond sort of this general descriptive understanding within the clinical community that already was bought in to we're seeing these clients coming in, we're seeing these commonalities. This is not just people behaving badly. There's something else going on here. And what we're seeing matches what we see with other addictive patterns. We needed in order to take it from the clinical community that was bought into that, into something that, the World Health Organization would be willing to look at that. The DSM would be willing to look at. We needed more um, specific data-driven research, and so we started doing that. And that's what Afar has provided. Because of the data-driven research that Afar has provided, and other research that people did, that the you know my the, it was um, one of the things that I was so excited to see was when we started getting the fMRI. Studies. And for those of you who don't know, fMRI is a, um, is a uh, magnetic resonance that allows people to see the human brain and the parts of it that are active and what's going on in the brain while people are still living. Before we had that, we had to wait until people died, cut their brains open, dissect them, and sort of make guesses. Uh-huh. When we could start seeing the brain and what it was doing in real time, and then we could give people stimuli, like here, uh, look at this picture of of, of drugs or actually uh, have a drink and see what's going on in your brain. And for for sex addicts, give them stimuli that triggered sexually addictive thoughts and urges and see what was going on in their brain. Suddenly we could see how the addiction process showed up in the brain. Those fMRI studies had a significant impact on getting the ICD, the the ICD diagnosis by the World Health Organization into place. Now we have continued to build on that, getting more of that scientific uh, data. And afar, one of our big pushes is working with uh, medical doctors, psychiatrists out there, working with the APA, which are the people that put out the diagnostic and statistical manual that we use in the United States, really working with them and advocating for sex addiction being included. The research that we have brought forward recently that really lays the foundation and I think is gonna be uh, a significant piece in pushing that diagnosis into the DSM uh, is research that we partnered with uh, a researcher up at the University of Alberta in Canada, a woman named Catherine Atchison and her lab Um, worked with us around, uh, let's see what's going on with sex addiction. So we got, and this is just, you know, again, appreciate the clinical community and their buy-in with all this. Mm -hmm. We got assessment data and genetic information from almost 500 sex addicts that were in inpatient treatment programs in the United States. We refer to that sort of tongue-in-cheek as the data from 45-year-old white guys Mm -hmm. that are patient programs. Mm -hmm. But we got all of this data, and we got the the genetic information, and we got it up to uh, Dr. Atchison. She worked with the University of Alberta and got almost 2,000 students varying genders, varying ethnic backgrounds, uh, a little bit of varying ages, but typically, you know, 18 to 25. Got their assessment data and genetic information as well that we could use as controls. Turns out, and this is not going to surprise you, Carol, because we know this statistic, turns out that about 12% of the students met the criteria in their assessment to be included in the sex addiction population. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly we've got a relatively large group of people that we've got assessment data on that we've got genetic data on we can start looking at what's going on the the atchison lab is right next to another laboratory up there at the university of alberta that does this stuff called machine learning and so what they could do and when when people typically do research they say hey this is what i think is going to go on and so let's do some experiments and let's see if we can find that correlation with the machine learning, we can put all of this data into a computer. And the computer can cross-reference all of the possible connections and it can spit out this information. And it can say, based on what you've given us, here's what we're seeing are the things that seem to be connected and here's the things that are not connected. What came out of that research, which again doesn't surprise us who've been doing this work because we know it, but most importantly, we now have neutral data by a, a, a validated researcher uh-huh. that has, you know, a large swath of people that says we are seeing that people who meet the criteria for sex addiction, um, they, those people in the sex addiction correlates with, meaning they're more likely who struggle with depression than the people who were not assessed as, with sex addiction? They're more, <clears throat> excuse me, they're more likely to struggle with suicide and suicidal thoughts. They're more likely to struggle with ADHD than other people. There was another. You
0: know, if you so, need a glass of water, go get one. I'll talk
1: to the people. I appreciate that. I'll be okay. I think for me, the most, the, the finding that I found most exciting. Okay. And let me back up. Back in the day, back in the seventies, when we were first doing addiction research, there was a disagreement between the psychiatric community or the psychiatrists uh-huh. and the addiction therapists. And it was over the word compulsive. We in the addiction field talk about compulsion as You know, this is a behavior that we find pleasurable, that we're drawn to, and it's gotten out of control, and we are unable to adequately contain it. That's what we refer to as a compulsive behavior. The psychiatrists heard this word compulsion, and they said, well, what you're really talking about is an obsessive compulsive disorder. Their definition of compulsion, uh, related to an obsessive compulsive disorder, however, is a behavior that the person typically doesn't find pleasurable. People don't find lots of pleasure in turning lights on and off or checking an oven four or five times before they leave or those kind of things. They typically know that that behavior isn't really going to make a difference one way or the other, but they still feel compuls- uh, feel compulsion to do that. So the obsessive-compulsive disorder and the addictive compulsion are very different things, but there's been this disagreement on what we're really dealing with when sex addiction would show up in the national media the 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 way that it was typically talked about is what you said is this just people behaving badly or is there an addiction going on and then there was a shift and it happened about the time that tiger woods and all of his sexual addiction stuff came on came to light and with if you were watching the, the, the programs where they were talking about Tiger Woods, suddenly they were having different experts on, and the conversation on, on, on the news media changed to, is this an addiction or is this an obsessive compulsive disorder, which sort of harkens back to this long-standing question, back to the research we have up in Canada. When we did the machine learning, we looked at what's correlating with the people who are meeting the criteria for sex addiction and what is not correlating with sex addiction. What didn't correlate, what showed up as a separate, distinct disorder was obsessive-compulsive disorder. And that, I think, is such an important finding because we've been struggling with within the within the larger professional community with the sex addiction clinician, clinician saying, this is an addictive behavior, and other people that don't understand the work we're doing saying, is this really an addiction or is this just an obsessive compulsive thing and you're labeling it this way? Now we have data that shows Sex addiction and obsessive compulsive disorder are very, very different entities. And I think that's going to be a huge piece in sort of pushing this over so we can get that diagnosis in the DSM.
0: Well, and you know, I'm going to suggest, I graduated with my certified sex addiction therapy certification, and I graduated a month before Tiger Woods, Woods had his issues. And that's where I really found that people didn't buy into what I was doing. They really did think it was, oh, well, he's famous. Oh, he's a man. Oh, he had accessibility. You could get anybody all over the world. Now, what I clearly hear you saying is that those are all some preconceived notions that anybody, they're, they're allowed to have, but we have researched that indicates that there are criteria, if you will, inability to stop, repeated Mm -hmm. to stop. Um, The behavior typically worsens, either within the actual sex addiction or it graduates to another form. And so there's all these criteria that have been identified via research. It's not just by word of mouth, it's via research. Is that correct?
1: Yes. And the, the research that shows, and not, not only do we know that, but we have this research that shows that, and it's all about neurology. Uh-huh. You know, the, the, again, going back to those fMRI studies, we can actually see the parts of the brain that are responsible for what we choose to focus on and the behaviors we choose to mm-hmm. lean towards. Mm-hmm. And we can see in addicts that that part of the brain has become hyperactive mm-hmm. related to addictive stimuli, mm-hmm. which really means that when you have an addiction going on, neurologically, your brain is no longer reacting based on the reality around you. Mm-hmm. Your brain neurologically is hyperdrawn to whatever your addictive hit is, Uh and it's drawn to that regardless of what the situation in reality is around it, which helps us to understand addicts and some of the really poor choices that they make.
0: Oh, absolutely. And you know, Tim, not to digress, but here I go for one Mm -hmm. second, because, again, we're talking about FAR, the American Foundation for Addiction Research, and the the groundbreaking work that they're doing and that they continue to do to legitimize the kinds of treatment that addicts of all sexes, genders, races really need. And so what Tim is saying, obviously, is these fMRIs show, based on stimulation, certain parts of the brain that get activated just as they would with other type of addictions, uh, substance abuse. Uh, um, alcoholism and my digression is if you are a loved one of a sex addict and you're listening to this show right now we also have research that shows that partner betrayal your MRIs um, show very similar um, activation as those in post-traumatic stress disorder so when we show that, post, people that have had post-traumatic stress, they've been in war, they've seen horrible things, their brain lights up, it's very, very similar. And so when we study the brain, it really helps to determine what needs to happen next. So continue with, with the work that Afar is doing.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I love what you're saying because it's so important. Think about, like you were saying with the park.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How empowering is it when a partner comes in and they are feeling crazy, mm-hmm. they're feeling insane, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, their their reality is spinning, they're reactive, there's stuff that they find themselves doing that just feels outside of who they are.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've never been like this before, and they wonder, are they going crazy?
1: And to be able to look at them and to say, not. Yeah, your behavior is out of control. We need to contain your behaviors. But to be able to say, you know what? Because of what you've gone through, here's what we're seeing that has happened in your brain. And your brain is trying to manage this trauma. Uh-huh. And these parts of your brain have shut down because they're they're not necessary to survive trauma responses. And this part of your brain is hyperactive in an attempt to keep you safe. Mm-hmm. And that, re- that response, that hyperactivity of this part of your brain, is what's driving your behavior and driving you to see things in this way in that particular moment. You're not crazy. We just need to help your brain to sort of like calm down and rewire itself back into this way that functions in a different way. And we have the tools to do that Through support groups, because peer groups are amazingly helpful,
0: Uh but also through
1: trauma treatment Uh and and, and better helping you to understand the red flags that are going to set that neurology into motion. We are able to have those same conversations with addicts now. When they come in, we can say, look, it's not that you're just behaving badly. And, And it's not that you're not moral enough. And it's not that you don't love people and care about them and actually think about them. But your brain has been rewired for a variety of reasons, and your brain is hyperdrawn to these addictive stimuli and to addictive behaviors. The part of your brain that contains your behaviors has been hurt. And so not only are you drawn to a behavior, but when you try to stop and sort of redirect or contain your behavior, your brain is neurologically unable to do that. Mm -hmm. I sometimes talk to clients about you want to think your brain is a sports car. You want to think that your brain is driving along and it can corner on rails and it can stop on a dime. And when I explain to them what you have to understand is that neurologically the damage that's been done to your brain through addiction means that your brain functions like a loaded moving van. Uh If you're going to try to turn, you need to start thinking about that way in advance. And if you're trying to stop, you need to think about that way in advance. You need to recognize that you're driving a very sluggish, hard-to-control, hard-to-maneuver, loaded moving thing. And that's not because you lack motivation. It's not because you're a bad person. It's because your brain has been impacted by addiction. Yeah, And when
0: yeah. get that. Yeah, go ahead.
1: And when people get that, suddenly we can start to talk about some of the behavioral things that will be helpful. And we can start talking about the slow process of rewiring their brain but still being cautious. Mm -hmm. You know, there's another piece, and this is coming out. uh, We've known this for a while, but, again, that research up in Canada, part of what we looked at was the neurological components that were going on with sex addiction. One of the things that we have seen across the board, and I'm not gonna go into detail with this because I know enough to sort of explain what talked about what's going on, but not enough to do it justice and I don't wanna get myself in trouble, but we looked at dopamine. Mm -hmm. And what we know about like alcoholism and drug addiction and other known addictions is that there are dopamine receptor issues. Typically dopamine receptors one, two and three, I believe have issues, which means that addicts' brains and the centers that create that pleasure, wellness experience,
0: mm-hmm.
1: have lower levels of dopamine than the normal average person's brain.
0: Yeah, deficiencies, if you will.
1: Exactly. There's a mm-hmm. dopamine deficiency mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. We found those same dopamine deficiencies related to the same dopamine receptors Uh in the brains of sex addicts. So what happens is when you've got a lower level dopamine, it actually creates a motivation for behavior to get that dopamine level raised.
0: Excessive behaviors. Exactly. Uh What
1: the lower level of dopamine is what we refer to and the motivation to raise that dopamine is what we in the the clinical community talk about as an addictive urge. The addictive urge doesn't come about because somebody is, again, not doing their work. Mm -hmm. The addictive urge comes about because somebody's dopamine level is lower and that's a genetic, uh, well, it's a neurological condition that addicts are struggling with. How powerful is it to be able to tell an addict or a partner look, what's going on here is a neurological condition. It's not that as the partner you weren't enough. It's not as the addict that you didn't care enough. There's a neurological condition. We need to go in and deal with that, help you to understand it so that you can manage it. Now, that doesn't let addicts off the hook for the impact of their behaviors in the past. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that partners don't have to do their own work to heal and find their way through whatever that process is. And it certainly doesn't mean that all these relationships are going to stay together. Right. But, but it does give us a lot of uh, understanding of, oh, this is really a brain issue. Your brain is not working the way it's supposed to. Mm-hmm. And we've got the empirical data to show that and talk about it, and now we can integrate that neurological work into the clinical work that we're doing with addicts and with partners.
0: Well, and I remember even in 2007, they were talking about the neuroplasticity of the brain. And mm-hmm. the, prior to 2000s, we didn't think the brain could change. And now we know how to help addicts and partners to develop neuroplasticity based on new behaviors. Mm-hmm. And like you said, groups are so effective for partners, and we know they're effective for addicts, Um, Tim, obviously, this is exciting research. Would you share about the research that occurred in Poland?
1: Uh, Now, I want to preface this by saying this is part of the reason that getting a diagnosis into the DSM is so important. The World Health Organization put sex addiction, uh, actually compulsive sexual behavior disorder, into the ICD. Mm-hmm. Uh, the International Criteria for Diagnosis, I believe, is what it stands for. Because that diagnosis was in the ICD, suddenly lots of money for research became available. Wow. And that research funding wasn't limited to organizations like FAR. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, various national organizations that have money available to research mental health issues were willing to fund research into compulsive sexual behavior disorder.
0: Wow, that's
1: exciting. And so we're hoping, you know, we want to get it in the DSM, partly because the diagnosis will be so helpful for clinicians and people, but also because when we get that diagnosis in there, it opens up funding resources in a whole different way. So in Poland, they were able to get money to fund this research And what they did is they got a number of people, and they were able to identify men and women who met the criteria for addiction, specifically addiction to pornography and struggles with pornography. Out of that research, there were two significant findings. One was empirical data that showed people who met the criteria for porn addiction used porn significantly more than people who didn't meet the criteria for, sex, uh, for pornography addiction. That doesn't surprise us. We kind of expected that. But again, having that empirical data to say, look, it's not just a clinical observation. Here's data that shows that. The other piece that was really important is they were able to identify and, um, and, and clarify with data that the people who met the criteria for sex addiction, when they stopped looking at pornography, experienced withdrawal. Mm-hmm. And the people who didn't meet the criteria for, for pornography addiction, when they stopped looking at it, they did not right. go through the withdrawal experience. And so all of this is just such powerful uh, evidence that supports what we already know, which is that pornography uh, sexual behavior can be addictive, mm-hmm. not addictive for everyone, but it can be addictive and When it is addictive and that neurological process gets in place, then we see all kinds of stuff, including withdrawal symptoms
0: awesome. in those individuals mm-hmm. and that was the big rub. you know so many professionals said this is not an addiction right because there's no withdrawal symptoms, but there was mhm now. Clearly, you know, you, you can see the excitement as you talk about this incredible, this incredible organization and what they are doing. Um, and I know that we all can donate to AFAR. Uh, we yeah. all can donate to the American uh, Federation of uh, Addiction Research. And I want to encourage my listeners that I did a spirally bound book and all of the proceeds go, goes to a far. It's called sexual addiction, um, wisdom from the masters. And I created it specifically so that when you bought it, that money would go directly to them. It's spirally bound because it doesn't cost me a lot to make. So I'm, I'm donating and then you're donating and We all can do our part, especially for sex addiction that always seems to be running a bit behind in the world of addiction for receiving funds and grants and things like that. What would you have us do, Tim, in the last couple of minutes?
1: Well, you know, if you want to donate to us, we would love that. Mm -hmm. You know, you can find find us at Mm www.addictionresearch.com, and we make it easy for you to donate to us there. If you donate to us, we would love that. That would be great. I think equally important at this point is what we're doing right now, which is we're talking about AFAR. And so I would ask the listeners out there, if you're in a conversation and it comes up and it makes sense, talk about AFAR, talk about the American Foundation for Addiction Research and what we're doing, the importance of the research for funding, how we're moving the field forward. AFAR has been, was very active, and then we have been a little bit sort of in the shadows the last four or five years, and we're really pushing to come back and and get back out there so people know what we're doing and what we're advocating for, and the more that you talk about us and put us in sort of like the public sphere, Mm -hmm. the more effective our advocacy work can be. That is so powerful uh, because we've got... As we're wrapping up this current research, and let me just say, the second part, maybe the third part, but the, 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 the next part of this Canada research is taking all of this genetic data we have and running it through what they call a GWASH, which means we are pulling out the entire genetic genome of the control and the sex addicts, running it through the machine learning, so we can look... and and identify what are the genetic components that are contributing to sex addiction that we may not even have an idea are contributing factor currently. That is just so exciting to be able to understand that there's a genetic component going on with this. Mm -hmm. And the more that we understand that, the more effective we can be with preventative stuff, providing information out there to how do we do preventative information for sex addiction, like we currently do with alcoholism, Hey, you come from a family that has an alcoholic background. That doesn't mean you can't drink, but if you're gonna drink, be aware that you have a predisposition to this. You probably need to be thoughtful and careful and, and, and be hyperaware of if it's getting out of control. To be able to have those same conversations with people that we have identified have a predisposition to addiction related to sexual behaviors would be so powerful. And then we're looking to fund the next round of research. The areas I think would be really powerful are what really uh, comes out as effective treatment for addiction. And also, there's a whole area of research to be done for partners. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of descriptive information about partners and what's going on. But to be able to have empirical data to support what we see in partners and better understand the different partner experiences and how to effectively provide treatment and support to them, I think there's some really exciting stuff to do out there. And so talking about us gives us more of an opportunity to fund and to continue this next step of research and get that word
0: out there. Oh, Tim. Tim Stein, I just thank you so much for bringing this up, bringing it to our attention. I think you got to come back. I think, you know, you need to come back in six months, share with us some more of what you're doing. Um, I hear that advocacy in your voice, and we all know that this is sex addiction, partner betrayal, it all requires advocacy. So thank you so much. I'm so glad that you are helping them with their mission. And we do want to stay abreast of what we can do. And so you heard him say, listening audience, bring it up. When you're talking to people after the group, bring it up in your families and, you know, in your meetings and in, in, in the workplace. As people begin to understand the American Foundation for Addiction Research, they'll better be able to have compassion and empathy for this very specialized group of people. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, my pleasure. And I will say, when we get the results from the genetic do study that we're doing i will gladly come back here and share with you what we have found and what that all seems to indicate and what that means for you know the work that you and i have both hold so close to our hearts
0: it's a deal so we'll see you soon i hope
1: i look forward to it
0: <laughs> thank you tim thank you so much and, and um yeah remember that that website to find out more information and just stay abreast of what the American Foundation of Addiction Research is doing, is www.addictionresearch.com. Tim, make it a good one and have a great weekend. You too. All right. Okay, well, there we go. You learned something today. I know you did. And I am so looking forward to being back with you next week. We've got a, a, a fascinating guest. And hey, listen, I got to run because I am faculty now for Certified Sex Addicts and I am doing the couples module. I'm doing relational repair. My website, www.sexhelpwithcarolthecoach, is going to have a couples workshop coming up. I want you to see if you can come and be a part of that. It's online, very affordable for the couple. And just know that we're always reaching out and providing support any way we can. So as I say at the end of every show, there will only be one of you at all times fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. Make it a good one, and we'll see you next week for more Sex Help with Carol, the coach.